was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number eight. This is the podcast in which we dissect the world's most distinguished double O agent for your delectation and delight. We should begin by thanking those of you who've given the show a kind review. They really do help boost our overall ranking in the podcast charts and, of course, inspire us to continue bringing you more Bond. So thank you very much indeed. Remember, you can find us on all good podcast platforms and a review hopefully five stars, uh, alongside any feedback and comments would always be appreciated. Also, our social media, you know by now, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, on Twitter as More Cubby, or drop us a direct line via email, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, all one word, no apostrophe, at gmail.com. So do get involved with the show in whichever way you'd like. Get your friends, get your family involved. Give a call to your brother-in-law, Billy Bob, if you have to, uh, the more the merrier. Now, if you remember back to our last episode, we discussed Bond number seven, Diamonds Are Forever. Safe to say, not our favorite Bond film, but a Bond film nonetheless. So we did find some redeeming features. Even in the bad parts, we got some good mileage out of the intentional and unintentional comedy elements, uh, not least in the characters of Mr. Wint, Mr. Kidd, and of course, Charles Gray's rather unique or should I say uniquely Kemp, take on Spectre's Blofeld. But this week we say goodbye to old blowers for a while, and we say a big hello to the spiritual owner of this podcast. It's his name on the door, it's his cubbyhole, it's Roger Moore. So with me to discuss this new eyebrow-raising era for Bond, it's the usual hosting team. Uh, firstly, it's the man who, when he was young, had a heart like an open book, and he used to say, live and let live. He knows he did. He knows he did. He knows he did. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. Uh, very much looking forward to what well, is very much a new era for the Bond series, um, obviously with Roger Moore coming in um, for his first role in the franchise. And thank you very much for the uh, for the kind words. I, I, I do always uh, aspire to the live and let live um, analysis you've you so eloquently put there. Um, I did just want to do a really, really quick shout out to everybody that's been getting in touch on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for all your feedback and all your comments, particularly to Neil Smith and Steve Spring on Facebook for your comments. And also on Twitter to um, to Gabriella at, uh, at Noir or Never for the James Bond June Challenge. And to Robbie Sims, um, there is a brilliant book called Quantum Bacillinus, The Peculiar World of J uh, Bond, James Bond. And it's basically a really brilliant read, just a really sort of humorous look at the kind of the lighter side of Bond films. So if you are kind of, even if you're a Bond fan or if you're just sort of a casual viewer, it is a great read. So I do recommend if you do see it on Goodreads or on Amazon, um, do check it out. It's available now. So just to give you a little bit of an insight into um, part of the book, one of the uh, slightly punchier gags that was kind of done in the Cubby Hole um, honour. So just a little Quote, if you laid all the abysmal scenes from Die Another Day end-to-end, -end, you'd probably be the movie's editor. So that's just one of the openings to um, Quantum of Silliness. So if you do get the chance to read it, by all means, just look on Waterstones or Amazon for that. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. That sounds like a, a good book, which I'll purchase myself. And uh, secondly, it's the man who, when he was young, kept his identity a mystery going around telling everyone that names is for tombstones, baby. But we did later find out that his name was Adam. It's Adam. Thank you very much, Martin. There was nothing sinister behind me always saying names is for tombstones, baby. I was just very into Sergio Leone Westerns at that point. The one bit about Quantum of Silliness, the book which I was quite fascinated by, was the reimagining of License to Kill, the toughest and most violent of the Bond films, but with Roger Moore in the lead and sort of speculating how weird that would have been. I'm not sure it's the weirdest mismatch of Bond actor and film, though. I kind of think that plonking Timothy Dalton into Moonraker would have been as awkward, if not more awkward, than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that would be tragic. 
Okay, very good. So we have a new section, actually, before we get on to the plot synopsis and, of course, Alan's lovely summary of the film. Uh, our new section is called Q Branch. Q stands for questions in this case. This section will be about uh, audience questions that we've had. What do we have for this week, Adam? Thank you very much. Yes, please do send any and all questions in you have to rogermorsecubbyhole at gmail.com and we will answer them as best we can. We've had three questions in actually from the Quans in Guiseley near Leeds. Uh, they have actually shown a lot of commitment. They've watched all seven Bond films we've covered so far in seven consecutive nights. So well done for that. So question number one, this isn't so much a question as just an observation. How come Bond is so athletic for someone who smokes and drinks so much? What do we think about that? Yeah, it's an interesting one to think about. I think perhaps the, the idea that he's been shot at so many times, it's probably the adrenaline that's keeping him going half the time. But um, yeah, there are certain films, particularly more than others, where Bond looks a little bit sort of tired around the edges. So you'd probably say that uh, he does struggle in a few. But he does look this, so I'd um, I'd say that he was probably probably more than capable of keeping up with uh, with younger people. Well, I think if my life was uh, was constantly regenerated into new people, then I might have a lot of energy as well. <laughs> this second question, one for you, Martin. Martin has referred to his strange accent and his hometown. Is he on a top secret mission or will the listeners ever find out where he's from? Martin, where are you from and where are you now? Uh, I'll remain an enigma, I think. I am on a secret mission <laughs> as part of this podcast. I cannot verify my identity or location. Fair enough, final question, and it's a two-pronger. Did Hugh Jackman really turn down the role of Bond, and which actor would have been your dream Bond? I wasn't aware of Hugh Jackman turning it down, actually. He may have done. I mean, I said there's been a lot of different actors that have been considered for the role, so I'm not actually aware of if he was offered or not. Um, in terms of actors that I'd have wanted to have played Bond, I think they've all done pretty good jobs, the ones that we've had so far. I think they've all been pretty well cast. Um, I'd put, I know obviously there's going to be a lot of uh, what you're saying. So I, th I would have liked to have seen Tom Hardy as, I know he's too old to do it now, but I would have liked to have seen him sort of take on the role, particularly if Christopher Nolan had ever have directed a bomb film. I think that would have been quite an interesting partnership. Uh, Martin, I'm not sure what you'd have thought to that. Would you sort of agree with that or would you pick somebody else? Uh, I quite like the idea of Michael Fassbender as Bond, but I'm not sure whether he would be too similar to Brosnan. So rather than, I know obviously Craig does an excellent job as Bond, but after Brosnan, maybe Fassbender could have taken over as uh, in his early career. I'll second both of those. I would say also, were it not for the debilitating fact that he were American, John Hamm, uh, Don Draper in Mad Men, I think would have been a fantastic James Bond. I guess Jackman, if he was offered it or considered it, would have been around the time Daniel Craig took on the role. As far as my knowledge of that goes, the final two for that were Daniel Craig and Henry Cavill, who did fine out of it. He went on to become Superman and, and have a very glittering franchise-heavy career. Okay, thank you very much indeed for those questions and for future episodes. Do get your questions in. We'll try our best to cover as many as possible. So uh, it's over to you, Adam and Alan, for the story synopsis. Thank you very much, Martin. Live and Let Die, the eighth James Bond film based on the second James Bond novel. Guy Hamilton, who directed Diamonds Are Forever and prior to that Goldfinger, is back in the director's chair. And for the first of seven movies in a row, it's Roger Moore, our great namesake, as James Bond 007. Tom Mankiewicz, who co-wrote Diamonds Are Forever, now takes sole screenwriting duties. And George Martin, the Beatles producer, takes over the music uh, scoring from John Barry. Now, Live and Let Die is released in June 1973, so still 15 years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Live and Let Die is made for $7 million, so in line with the previous two instalments, it goes on to make $162 million. So it's a massive hit. In fact, if you adjust that for inflation, it's the third highest grossing Bond movie so far after Goldfinger and Thunderball. So to learn what happens in it, as always, here's Alan Partridge. Strolling down the gun barrel, it's Roger Moore. Bang! Blood dribbles down. A man gets eardrum blasted to death at the UN. Another man gets stabbed at a New Orleans jazz funeral. And another man gets snake bitten in a voodoo ceremony. Cue Maka. So live and let die. 
A naughty Italian spy Benny hills it round Bond's house when M and Moneypenny pop in at the crack of dawn before Bond unzips her with his magic watch. Pure magnetism, darling. Bond sent to investigate dodgy Caribbean politician Dr. Kananga and tails into Harlem where he's nearly run off the road by a white pimpmobile and wasted in a barbecue joint by drug kingpin Mr. Big. Bond flies to San Monique to hook up with the beautiful but useless agent Rosie Carver, who freaks out after he burns a snake with a cigar and aerosol. You should never go in there without a mongoose. But Rosie's a traitor and gets off by a killer scarecrow after a sexy picnic. Bond paraglides into the home of Kananga's future-telling Taro High Priestess Solitaire, who Bond seduces with a rigged pack of lovers' cards. The deck was slightly stacked in my favor, darling. They escape Kananga's heroin fields in a clacked-out double-decker, but Solitaire's captured while Bond gives an old biddy a flying lesson. In New Orleans, Mr. Big reveals he's only Dr. Bloody Kananga in disguise, and Solitaire lost her fortune-telling powers thanks to Bond's magic penis. Kananga reveals its plan to turn America into a nation of crackheads before threatening to have claw-handed henchman Teehee cut all Bond's dangly bricks off. Instead, Bond's sent to an alligator farm, and he crocodile dunzees it out into an epic Bayou boat chase. Meanwhile, out of bloody nowhere, the entire film gets taken over by the Dukes of Hazard. Camping is on the fender, boy. You picked the wrong Paris to haul ass through. We got us a swamp full of black Russians. Don't my river Billy Bob will catch him. What are you, some kind of doomsday machine? A secret agent on whose side? In San Monique, Bond rescues Solitaire from voodoo snake death, and in Kananga's underground lair, uses his magic watch and a compressed air bullet to make Kananga go banger. He always did have an inflated opinion of himself. Teehee has one last crack at them on the train home, but Bond tosses him out the window, leaving his core hand behind. Just being disarming, darling. The end. Oh dear, thank you very much, uh, Adam and Alan. Some excellent impression work there. Uh, and previously, I said that your impression of Hawker the Caddy from Goldfinger was the best, but I think that has now been overtaken by uh, Sheriff J.W. And there's more of him next week. Plenty to look forward to. So, uh, live and let die. Uh, I'd say this one is probably one of the, the more popular James Bond films among non-Bond fans. It seems to be the most well-known, perhaps because of the, the first time a rock song had appeared as a James Bond title theme written and sung by Paul McCartney, of course. So in terms of this film, we should probably start with Roger Moore, his introduction. Quite a different introduction to uh, George Lazenby from On Her Majesty's that cinematic opening and fight sequence and Saving Tracy. This one is very, very different. We don't, there's not a lot of fanfare for Roger Moore. We meet him in his apartment the first time, or maybe the second time we've seen his apartment in the franchise. So what did we think to Roger Moore's introduction? I think it was quite a good way of introducing Moore, maybe because they'd been burnt by Lazenby beforehand, giving him a massive introduction, and then he leaves. Uh, but Moore, it felt like uh, this actor is here to stay, and he certainly did stay. Yeah, I'd agree with that much. I think it's um, it's the case that obviously they didn't want to go too much into kind of a, a huge fanfare for Roger Moore. I think, but I think with that case, they also had quite an established actor anyway, obviously with George Lazenby it was a slightly different circumstance because that was his first big acting credit with Honor Majesties. Whereas this, you know, obviously Roger Moore was kind of not necessarily a box office hit, but obviously he'd been in The Saints. He'd been in, it was at this point, it was already in The Persuaders as well. So he'd already kind of grown, not just fame in the UK, but also he was quite a well-known figure in America and kind of globally as well so it was kind of it was more of a home banker for this one so it wasn't really as much of a risk in in certain respects interesting enough as well Timothy Dalton obviously who would go on to play Bond was also considered in the early 70s but he thought he'd be too young to play the part so they were already sort of they had visions of where they wanted the franchise to go moving forward yeah, well, of course, this is the first time that they start casting Bond in the way that they would going forward, i.e. actors who are not established as massive film stars, but are established as well-known figures from other work. Roger Moore and indeed Pierce Brosnan from television, Timothy Dalton and arguably Daniel Craig from the theatre. 
Um, it's remarkable how relaxed they are about introducing Roger Moore as Bond in this one. He's not in the opening sequence, the pre-credit sequence, at all. That's the three assassinations, uh, which is quite remarkable. And it's the first time Bond proper isn't in a pre-credit sequence since From Russia With Love. Uh, but it is great when he is introduced in how relaxed it is. He's in bed with this beautiful Italian agent. And we immediately get that sense that Roger Moore is going to be very different from the Bonds we've seen before. He's a lover and not a fighter. And that's, of course, followed by this brilliant sequence, which plays out like a French farce of M and Moneypenny coming to his apartment. And there's a lovely three-way dynamic of them trying to stop M finding this half-naked lady in James Bond's flat. So it really does set the tone brilliantly for the much more light-hearted, rompy, I guess, era of Bond films uh, that Roger Moore heralds in. Uh, yeah, so the, the tone is very different, as we said. Uh, Roger Moore bringing a light-hearted comedic feel to the well I mean we've had comedy in the previous films but this one it seems like every other line is Roger Moore with a quip well what did we think for that Phil what we what was your impression were there too many jokes in this one uh, what was your feeling I don't think there were necessarily too many jokes I think there was it was kind of a nice balance of sort of you know serious moments and sort of lightheartedness you know I think I think it does actually work a lot better because with Sean Connery there was a lot more there was very, kind of very little compromise with Sean Connery's Bond, if that makes sense. So with with Roger Moore, it feels like there's more, there's possibly more warmth as well to Roger Moore's Bond. He's very much more charming and very much more erudite, and he, he's much more, well, yeah, I'd say he's, he's very much more of a charming character in this. I think. I think where this is a huge advance on Diamonds Are Forever is certainly in the casting of Roger Moore, and he for me is the best thing about this film. They double down on that sense of comedy, entertainment, and light-hearted rompiness that Tom Mankiewicz, in now becoming the sole screenwriter, has brought to it. I still have to admit, I never quite get the enthusiasm for this one. I think it's still very confused uh, as a film. There's a lot of different tones going on, even within the overall broadly comedic style of the film. And I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. First is that the producers, Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli, are starting to really row at this point. They've only got this in the next film that they co-produce, after which Harry Saltzman leaves the series. There's a tension, I think, between what Albert R. Broccoli saw the series as becoming, i.e. these big, spectacular, light-hearted entertainments, and Saltzman, who I think wanted to preserve that same sense of grit and uh, toughness that the Fleming thrillers had, in which they were adapting back in the Connery era. I think beyond that, just the story elements are pulling in a couple of different directions. On the one hand, you've got the cartooniness of the black exploitation uh, setting of the, the film occupies, and also the voodoo elements, which I feel kind of like the science fiction in You Only Live Twice, take the film a little bit too far from something that is not played for realism, but still reflects the reality that people in the early 70s were living in. Uh, but also it's too gritty at the same time, because for the first time, the villain is a drug lord, and you know his plot is all about flooding the heroin market which is, you know, quite a tough place for Bond to be going into. We've never really moved away from this world of international espionage or of crazy megalomaniacs with nuclear weapons. This is a very believable villain, in a sense. Uh, and so that combination of, on one hand, grit, and on the other hand, slightly cartoony fantasy elements of the story, I think, again, mean this is quite a confused film for me overall. But Roger Moore carries it with aplomb. And I think he's, his brilliance is so great that you can almost brush over a lot of that. I think in terms of the, um, the theme of the film, in terms of that sense, obviously with the drug baron and obviously wanting to kind of control the world's drug supply, I think it is very thematic of the time. And obviously we are coming back. I do find it very awkward with the black exploitation side of things. I mean, this is one of those films where when I was a kid, I used to really enjoy it looking back at it as an adult it's kind of there are elements that i just i sit there and i kind of cringe at them because particularly things like jw pepper where it's just you know you, you can't really watch it anymore you can't watch jw phil it's not that i can't watch it it's just do you not find it's just really cringeworthy just the i mean there are a lot of cringeworthy moments don't get me wrong i mean there's there's a moment where roger moore is in one of the taxes and he goes follow that jukebox and you just think why are you saying that why so in context, the JW sequence, it comes out of nowhere. And, and I'm always in two minds over JW because it's the most entertaining stretch of the film by far. It's so ridiculous and out of nowhere. And Clifton James plays him so hilariously. 
that it's not unentertaining in the slightest. You'd be lying if you said it's a rubbish sequence. But it is important to be in there because it makes the film an equal opportunities offender in the sense. We've had all the riffing on the black exploitation stuff and, and, you know, taking elements from that, I guess, film subgenre. JW is taken from exploitation, which again is a contemporary subgenre of movies. It's inspired by Deliverance, the great John Borman classic. Taking redneck characters and settings and sort of playing them for laughs and being a bit exploitative at, at how ridiculous they all are. And so it kind of, in a sense, excuses the things that the film was doing earlier in terms of the Harlem setting. So it's there, I think, for balance, in a sense. I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess it's sort of trying to move the plot along and sort of to try and... But no, I, I understand that it's kind of there for, for sort of comedic value and kind of the joke is on him. That's, that's what they're aiming for. I'm not sure. He said he moves the plot along, Phil. Like he moves the plot along in no way at all. We, yeah, he absolutely, he, he does the exact opposite of move the plot along. The film's half an hour shorter if you just get rid of JW. We should say, though, that is a great chase sequence. And it's, again, it's strange that because JW is so funny and so ridiculous, he detracts from the fact that it's a great boat chase. And again, it's the Bond films experimenting with a new type of action sequence. I know we've had a little bit of boat action at the end of From Russia With Love but nothing choreographed and staged on this kind of scale. Uh, and there are brilliant gags in it. I mean, you cannot deny the setup and placement of the gags in that boat chase are unbelievable. Roger Moore's, I think, biggest laugh in the film when after this crazy high-octane boat chase, he's trundling along at five miles an hour in the boating pond and just gives a very casual wave to Felix Leiter. It is a great chase sequence. I think the boat chase is really brilliant. I think the way it's all set up, as you say, Adam, it really does kind of advance things. and It, it really was a great action sequence. Um, now, in that sequence, there was also a world record. So when the uh, Roger Moore's boat launches over JW Peppers, that was a 110-foot leap across the, um, the gap. So that actually set a new world record as well. But no, I think it is a really, really good action sequence. And one of the rare occasions when Roger Moore actually does his own stunts as well, because he had to um, famously learn how to control the boats and, and indeed crashed one, which led to him suffering minor injuries at the time. Yeah, I was very impressed with the, the boat chase in general. As you said, Adam, JW is entertaining, whether you like his character or not. Uh, it's certainly an entertaining aspect of the, uh, the film. And uh, interestingly, I found out that the... The prototype JW from Diamonds Are Forever, an actor called, well, he wasn't an actor. Uh, he was part of the uh, the production team, Leroy Hollis. He makes a cameo in this one as well as one of JW's underlings. So uh, they bring back, they do like bringing back characters, don't they? We don't get Burt Quark, of course, but uh, throughout the whole franchise, there's been many reappearances. How about Felix Leiter? We get a, a new Felix Leiter, the fifth in as many films. We've got to go over to Phil, I guess, for his verdict. We don't trust at all your judgment, Phil. But what do we think of David Hedison? I feel does a great job and he worked with Roger Moore on The Saint beforehand, so you can tell there's already a, a friendly vibe between them. Uh, I think he works well as, uh, as this film's Leiter. Uh, what were your thoughts? David Hedison, for me, is probably... The, Felix, the best Felix Leiter of them all. I know we've had previous arguments about the Sean Connery era, but I think it's telling that Hedison is probably the only Leiter that actually makes a reappearance. Obviously, he comes back in Licence to Kill and is then kind of a pivotal part of that plot point as well, the fact that he is you know, so well-liked. So for me, David Hedison is the kind of archetypal Felix Leiter character. You know, he's, he's very much... Um, resourceful and he's he's able to actually help Bond in this film so you know he actually gets him out of a lot of difficult situations. Yeah I think David Hedison really injects a degree of competence uh, to Felix Leiter certainly in his portrayal of him that we have seen very sporadically in the previous one certainly compared to Norman Burton in Diamonds Are Forever. We do get a little bit of classic Leiter uselessness particularly in New Orleans when presumably his agent who's watching the Philly of Soul restaurant and the jazz funeral comes by meets the same fate as uh, the agent in the opening sequence. Presumably it's him in the coffin uh, that Bond and Leiter just blithely walk past. I think the other thing about Leiter in this film is he's a much more Basil Exposition character than in the previous ones. He does a lot of explaining the plot and what's going on and where everyone is moving to. And that's kind of a bit necessary because this is one of the toughest James Bond plots to actually follow. There are odd lines of dialogue where if you miss them, you would have no idea what's going on in any of this. You know, it's so 
preoccupied with the action sequences this film and the overall broadly comic tone and the jokes that they're putting in that the plot line almost gets lost in amongst all of that and so lighter in this one is actually completely necessary to tell the audience what's actually going on it's also necessary to help james bond pick some nice ties out in that random sequence in the hotel room bring me a tailor and i'll pick my favorite and those ties look god-awful as well. I mean, I know it's the kind of mid-70s, you know, the time when taste forgot, but they look bloody god-awful. I, I enjoy that scene, yet more comedy, but I do enjoy Lighter on the phone explaining Bond's, Bond ripping off the, the wings of the plane from an earlier action sequence. I thought, that, again, that helps build the, the relationship between Bond and Lighter as colleagues and friends. You're right, actually. David Hedison is like, gives great phone reactions in this film. There's the earlier bit as well when Bond's had to ring him when uh, you know his chauffeur has been killed with the dark and he's had to crash the car. And Hedison has that great moment where he just picks up the phone and he goes, yeah, hello? You did what? It's a great comedy reaction from him. I think one of the best things of this film as well is when um, Bond's in the other CIA agent's car and he goes, a genuine Felix lighter, when he obviously when he's got the, the actual cigarette lighter, the fact that there's this micro technology and then just obviously Felix lighters at the end of it. I think that's just a great little in-joke as well. Yeah, I think in general it feels like we mentioned in our last episode, Diamonds Are Forever was a bit of a mess, almost as if the makers of the film hadn't thought about each of the scenes that they were going to make. But this one seems to be the opposite. A lot of care and attention seems to have been put in all of the, both the big action sequences and those small little moments of having a, a genuine Felix Leiter. Uh, but yeah, I do agree that Leiter is still a bit useless, particularly in his choice of CIA agents to help Bond. Uh, that leads us nicely into the women of the film. Uh, we get Rosie Carver is sent to help Bond. What did we make of her character? It seems like she's going to be a strong, independent woman who fights away Bond's charming advances. But then her character certainly does not end up being met, does it? No, I think the word that comes to mind with Rosie Carver, sadly, is, is indignity. Um, I'm not even sure we do set her up as a strong, independent agent. This is a classic Bond woman mistake. We have characters who are themselves secret agents and so appear to have agency and resourcefulness and ability, but are then essentially exposed as being fundamentally useless and rubbish at that job. The very first thing we see of her is judo flipped onto a bed, at which point her afro flies off across the room after which we get her screaming, A, at a dead snake in the bathroom, B, at a voodoo hat with feathers stuck in it. So, yeah, and, and of course, for pretty much her second scene in the film, when she's on Quarrel Jr.'s boat in the island, she is clad in a bikini for pretty much the whole time. We get her screaming a lot again and being scared of everything and running through the jungle a la Benny Hill or carry on up the jungle. Yeah, I don't think the treatment, particularly since this is our first black Bond woman, I feel like it's a really disappointing treatment of this character. Yeah, I do like how he, he sets her up as well when they've got on Quarrel Jr.'s boat. They don't, he doesn't bother to say, oh, Quarrel Jr.'s on our side. <laughs> so she could have just shot Quarrel Jr., couldn't she? She might even have killed him if she uh, took the safety catch off. Yeah, that is a little bit silly of Bond. Why doesn't he just say? Because there's the joke about, you know, there are these other boats on the pontoon that she's trying to negotiate, which look a lot faster, and then Bond takes her to the boat that looks a bit clapped out with the guy who's asleep on the deck. But I guess at that point, he's already had the Queen of Clubs upside down on the paper, so he knows or suspects that she's a traitor. Yeah, to be honest, I think Bond does her a disservice in this film, and obviously then, you know, she's very much expendable, the fact that the um, the scarecrow gun then executes her in, in quite an undignified manner as well, so it's kind of, it's a very brief appearance, which is then snuffed out quite quickly. I've always wondered why does the Scarecrow only have one bullet? Kananga gets incredibly angry that Solitaire has misread the cards and Bond isn't dead. Well, put more bullets in the Scarecrow. Yeah, presumably every Scarecrow is at least armed with a bullet. And because he has so many Scarecrows, um, you know, he's probably fine and knows, well, if one doesn't get the, the next one on the pathway, well. And I guess he has got Baron Samadhi there to sort of very quickly go up behind the Scarecrows and reload the bullets at the back should a uh, need actually uh, arise. Good morning, boss. Morning. It's so going to be a beautiful day. <laughs> yes, a beautiful day.
How about Solitaire? Should we move to her character? A very interesting character, very well portrayed, I felt, by Jane Seymour, one of her first acting credits. What did we think about her character? I think that Jane Seymour does a really brilliant display of Solitaire. You know, there's a very, there's a huge vulnerableness to that character. I think that, you know, the way that it's portrayed, it's a very, very, you know, innocent and, you know, quite frightening character as well. You know, there's elements where she's, she is very much afraid of Kananga, although she is aware that he kind of, he is almost her guardian in a way. It's quite, a, it's a quite a strange dynamic that they have in a sense, because obviously she is, she's kind of his prisoner, but he, she's almost got like Stockholm syndrome where she can never leave because he gives her everything that she needs. You know, he's, she's got kind of financial security she's got a home she's got a very you know almost a, a community of people around her all she has to do is read the tarot cards and as long as she doesn't get it incorrect obviously she, she ends up doing it's kind of she's got a home for life almost I absolutely hate what they do with Solitaire in this film I think it's a complete travesty kudos to Jane Seymour I think she's a talented actress of course and I think she does her absolute best with what is essentially a thankful role but I think that the changes they make for this character from the book are incredibly distasteful. And it's such a shame because she begins, of course, as a character with real power. You know, she can genuinely, it seems, see the future and has this psychic ability thanks to the tarot cards. And that introduction to her when we see projected onto the tarot table with the cards coming on top of it, Bond's flight over to New York and she's explaining who he is and what he's going to bring. There's a real aura of mystery about it. And I absolutely love that. And I love how confident she is, despite her relative youth, when she first meets Bond and, and she's revealing cards like, you are the fool, you have found yourself, which is completely ruined as soon as she's seduced by Bond in the way that she is. And there's something incredibly uncomfortable about this change from the book, that her psychic ability is bound up in her virginity. And that, of course, as soon as Bond takes that away from her, He's also removed her of the power she had that made her such an interesting character who's so far ahead of the men in this film. As soon as she has sex with Bond, she literally and quite physically becomes a damsel in distress. And I think it completely ill serves the character. Yeah, I can see what you mean, Adam. There are, again, there are elements of this film that are, that are not acceptable at all. And the fact that, you know, her powers are kind of almost bound up by the fact that she's a virgin, it's sort of, it's a really, really problematic sort of theme really it's it's really problematic that they even considered that role and I guess when you kind of watch it as a kid you don't really pay attention to that you don't you're not really aware of that and again Bond in this film he's really disparaging of um of Solitaire considering how much value she has not just to him but also to Kananga you know obviously Kananga relies on her to kind of predict what is going to be coming in the future and how he can then react Bond is incredibly rude, I think, to the whole idea of voodooism, I think, is, is the wider issue. And, and obviously it's him kind of similarly to Dr. No, I guess, when everyone's talking about a dragon and he obviously rolls his eyes a little and, and shrugs his shoulders and knows that it's all fundamentally ridiculous. I think this film has the same problem in its presentation of the voodoo. Uh, we know, as Bond does, that it's all kind of mumbo-jumbo and it's all a ruse and it's a front on the part of Kananga to protect his heroin fields. But yeah, in terms of solitaire, she also believes in it, of course, because it, it's given her, her her ability. It may be a slight confusion in terms of the plot as well, because in the usually I don't like supernatural elements in but well, we don't we haven't seen that in Bond and we don't see it again. But in terms of this plot, then the supernatural is portrayed as being accurate. Like Solitaire's power seems to be genuine. And of course, we get the, the very stylistic ending of the film with Baron Samedi, who's already been killed on the back of the train. So it seems like it's presenting the supernatural as being true, but also, on the other hand, James Bond sniggering at it. And it's not just with Baron Samedi on the train at the end. There's the sequence earlier um, when he rescues Solitaire at the, the beginning of uh, the grand finale, which is a great sequence, by the way. Jeffrey Holder, who played Baron Samedi, was also the choreographer of the film. And so presumably that whole sequence and the dancing of the crowd around it and the guy with the goat's head who's brandishing the snake. It's a fantastically choreographed, threatening sequence. But yeah, and in the end of that, as Baron Samadhi, he rises from the grave. But there's that weird moment when Roger Moore shoots his head and a bit of it chips off as if it's just a model. And yet the eyes move as if they're real eyes. And so you think, well, hang on, you're having your cake and eating it here. Is this just a model? there to frighten everyone or or is he actually this supernatural mythical voodoo god of death 
who nonetheless needs a raising mechanic platform to get above the ground. So we've mentioned one of the uh, the henchmen of, uh, well, I guess he's, I'm not sure there is a henchman, Baron Samadhi. He's kind of a separate entity. But what did we think to the main baddies in this film? Uh, we said that the plot is kind of sidelined a bit. Mainly the action sequences are focused on in detriment to the, uh, the, the storyline. Uh, but what did we think? I thought that the actor who plays uh, Dr. Kaninga, Mr. Big, I thought particularly good, especially when he's his anger towards Bond for taking solitaire, uh, but what I think maybe his character in general was kind of overshadowed by his henchman. What did we think? Perhaps a little bit, but I think he's still a very imposing character. I mean, it's, I believe it's Yafet Koto who played Kananga, still the youngest actor to ever play a bomb villain as well. I think he was only about 33 when he played the role. Um, I could be wrong, but um, but yeah, I think he is a very, very convincing villain. I think that he brings something very different to the role. I think that, you know, he's, he's very imposing, he's very, you know, very controlling, certainly. And he's, he knows what he's, he's doing in terms of his grand plan is very different to those of the ones we've seen in Spectre. He's very much a businessman. You know, he's, he's the leader of one of the, the largest drug gangs in America. He's got this grand plan that he knows will succeed because it's literally just a case of he's already got the supply networks. He just And he's got, you know, an endless supply of, of the, with the poppy fields. I think Yafet Koto is absolutely fantastic as uh, Dr. Kananga and indeed Mr. Big. He has a slightly impossible job in this film in that he's got to do two villains in one. Yafet Koto has spoken actually about a little bit of discomfort uh, with this film. This is using elements of the black exploitation genre and this was an early 70s independent crime film genre in which it was black writers and directors and black actors who were essentially championing their culture and celebrating it in these great, grungy, but quite colourful and outlandish movies. Shaft is, I guess, the most famous. But there is a little bit of discomfort in that Mankiewicz is, of course, a white writer reappropriating this very black genre into the Bond films. And Koto has talked a little bit about, he felt a little bit uncomfortable about doing that. But nonetheless, I think he's great in this. And I think his Dr. Kananga is fantastic. He plays this role with such calm dignity, almost like a twisted... Martin Luther King, in a sense. And he has a couple of amazing scenes with Solitaire. And this is where Jane Seymour comes into her, her own. Uh, the first is when she's misread the cards and Bond has survived the assassination attempt that Rosie Carver hasn't. Uh, and there is a very coded rape threat, which uh, Kananga issues to her when he says, your power belongs to me. And when it is time for you to lose it, it will be me who takes it away. It's incredibly sinister how he delivers that and absolutely fantastic. And again, later in the torture sequence, when Bond is being taken to the alligator farm and he finally reveals to Solitaire, you have lost your power. And he is so enraged and he is so vicious and brutal with her. All of which slightly undermined, although in, in a very humorous way by him having probably the funniest death of any Bond villain, uh, thanks to the compressed air bullet sending him up like a balloon, which goes pop. In a very sanitary way. I mean, it's, it's amazing no one's been sprayed with intestines. I mean, you could read Solitaire's character as being even more innocent and naive when she asks, where's Kananga? Well, maybe she was just confused about the lack of blood and guts everywhere. It could also be the fact that the special effects team had to build their own fake inflated Kananga, which there is a great photo that I'll have to try and share on Twitter. I'd like to quickly mention one of my favourite lines of the film, just, uh, just two words uttered by Roger Moore, after we get Kananga's very serious um, portrayal with Solitaire, and that was Roger Moore's improvised line of Butterhook. Yeah, in reference to Teehee not being uh, able, or Julius W. Harris, the actor, I guess, not being able to take Bond's magic watch off. He is fantastic in this, and he returns to an older style of a Bond villain, you know, the very physically intimidating ones. He's an incredibly tall man, and of course he has that bizarre... Uh, visual, physical grotesquerie of, of the pincer arm, which we haven't seen before. Uh, and I guess it kind of inspires maybe what they later go on to do with Jaws and his metal teeth. This is perhaps the prototype of that. Uh, but he's fantastic in the crocodile farm sequence, simply because he's so calm. And you just love the idea that even though one of them's taken his arm off, 
these crocodiles are his passion. And he gets really gleeful and he enjoys himself as he's talking about, you know, what crocodiles are actually like and how long they live. It's almost like, you know, for once the main Bond villain isn't doing all the explaining to Bond, the henchman gets to do it. And yet, as we say, Harris plays the role really brilliantly and is genuinely sinister. And part of that comes from his smile as well, of course, just how big and rictus that grin is that he gives the character. Yeah, I quite like the throwback to the the fistfights, the train fistfight, similar to Red Grant. Uh, maybe not quite as good. And for some reason, the train carriage is not as sturdy. There's all, all of the walls seem to disintegrate with, I guess he's got a metal hand, so that might be the reason. Yeah, maybe it is a lovely throwback. Again, we're, we're taking elements that we've seen in Bond before, but reinventing them for a new era in this film. It's great also that we derive a sense of threat from locations really effectively in this. Of course, we've talked about the crocodile farm, and it's a great stunt when Ross Kananga jumps across their backs, and I think we've all seen the footage of that stunt going wrong and them almost having his foot off. But it's genuinely dangerous. It feels dangerous without having to do very much or go particularly big or spectacular. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's the same, actually, very early in the film when Roger Moore is walking through Harlem. I don't think I've ever been as genuinely scared for a James Bond in a Bond film as I am when Roger Moore walks into the Philly of Soul and it's that Western saloon scene when everyone, looking very tough, suddenly looks at him and stares at him. Yeah, I think we even get that line from the CIA agent about uh, Bond's brilliant disguise, a white face in Harlem, which I thought was quite good. But yeah, we've mentioned the the exploitation may be a problematic area of the film, but in in the positive way, because I quite enjoyed Bond being in that different environment and having to negotiate his way around it. Yeah, it's played relatively seriously when he's just walking into the Harlem bar and it feels and looks like a real Harlem bar. It's got the red boards and it's, it's got, you know, the guys at the pool table. So it does genuinely feel like the film is properly representing that community as it was at that time. And like I say, it is just such a shame that the, the overall representation of black culture in America and also in the Caribbean where everyone's scared of this voodoo is otherwise so borderline derogatory. It just undermines the moments when they do venture into this world and take it seriously and actually do a very good job of transporting Bond into a world he's very unfamiliar with. Should we talk about the music as well very quickly and specifically Paul McCartney's title song? I think this is potentially the best of all the Bond themes simply because of what it does in context. At this point, all of our themes have essentially been ballads. They've been largely performed by female singers, Shirley Bassey, of course, Nancy Sinatra, uh, Tom Jones, although he's not female for Thunderball. But this is very different. This is the first rock Bond song. And it's not something they do very often. Off the top of my head, I can maybe think of Chris Cornell with um, You Know My Name, the Casino Royale. But again, it's a great song and it feels Bond, despite being of a completely different musical genre. And it just, again, reasserts that fact that we are reinventing the series and it's used brilliantly in the film. Like when it recurs as an instrumental, it's always in fantastically tense sequences, like when Kananga's slashing Bond's wrists in the finale, not wrists, his elbow rather, in the finale to draw the sharks towards him. What do we think of that song? Yeah, I think it's a brilliant song. I think it's sort of, it moves Bond perhaps into the 70s, really, because obviously, you know, as you say, Adam, it's kind of a move away from what we've had traditionally with the Connery films, um, you know, where you'd have sort of, again, in their own way, there was a lot of power behind them, obviously, with Shirley Bassey with those, you know, sort of the tones behind it. But I think with this one, obviously, Paul McCartney and Wings together, they were, there was a real kind of energy behind it, and they really wanted it to to sort of showcase what the film was going to be about. I think one of the funniest things of sort of the backstories was obviously Guy Hamilton heard Live and Let Die for the first time and his opening remark to Paul McCartney was, yeah, that's a great demo. So when are you going to record the real song? Which uh, Paul McCartney obviously didn't really take a great delight to. So um, so there was probably a bit of, uh, bit of confusion in the early stages. But no, I think it is one of the very best um, Bond songs of them all. It's used really well. It's interesting that you say the instrumental versions are really good as well, Adam, in the, both in the action sequences and I noticed in some of the, maybe, well, some of the more awkward love sequences still have quite a nice softer version of the song playing in the background. So I think throughout the whole film, uh, it's just used really, really well. It is. And my only regret really is that the rest of the music um, around that song isn't better. I almost wish George Martin, who's taken over scoring duties from John Barry, had used a little bit more black musical influences in his score. He doesn't use that many beyond the New Orleans jazz and, you know, borrowing, of course, from Paul McCartney's song. 
You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? Okay, so we've mentioned there's lots of vehicular action in this film. So over to Phil, what did we have for the cars and gadgets? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. So in this film, obviously, the the action sequences with the cars and, of course, the boats are ramped up quite significantly. Um, so I thought really there was only really one place to start, and that was, of course, the boat chase. This is kind of pivotal for the plot because Bond has just escaped from... The alligator farm he needs an, an escape route and obviously Teehee and the other henchmen are, are in swift pursuit to do the filming for this Glastron boat company supplied 26 different boats for the filming obviously we see different sequences where the henchmen are chasing and in the end 17 of these were actually written off the so 17 were destroyed including as we've already mentioned the boat that launched across um, the the roadway to do the record 110 feet jump. Obviously Guy Hamilton was quite keen for Roger Moore to film a lot of the boat chase sequences so he had to learn how to control the boat and the boat you actually see him using for most of the filming was a CV-19 which was borrowed and he actually crashed one into the boathouse towards the end of filming. Um, just to go through a few of the kind of cars that involved as well. So obviously J.W. Pepper is the sheriff in this one. So he gets the um, the slightly more glamorous Chevrolet Impala, which then gets destroyed. You'll note the state troopers are only um, able to use Dodge Polaris. So they get the sort of lesser um, sort of vehicles for that sequence. But obviously they're in, in hot pursuit along with the other henchmen. There's also a brilliant gaff in this sequence, the oyster lorry that is kind of holding them up. And you see as the cars then overtake, they're involved in the accident where one overturns and then the other two pile into them. If you look very carefully at the end of that scene, you will see one of the stuntmen is still wearing his crash helmet in the actual driving seat, which they forgot to edit out. So again, we've still got some of the sort of editing idiocy that kind of befell us in Diamonds Are Forever. Just to go to the, the other chase sequences as well, so obviously the kind of the other big one is Sam Monique, obviously with the bus sequence. So the Sam Monique police were using Harley Davidson dirt bikes. The bus itself was an AEC, um, a 1947, um, I think it was a British design bus um, that was actually um, specially built the top section was weakened. So basically, obviously, when it's coming towards the bridge stunt, basically that was deliberately done so it would shear clean off because if you actually hit the bridge with a regular, you know, reinforced top deck, it would have just hit the, the top and just pushed it backwards, the whole bus backwards, rather than actually just pushing the top deck off. So they had to deliberately weaken the top deck. And just to quickly mention as well, the, the flight sequence as well, where we're in the aerodrome. So a lot of different cars are used in this sequence. Obviously, there's a lot of different Chevrolets, a lot of different Dodgers. For, some, for whatever reason, Guy Hamilton wasn't a fan of American cars and so decided to destroy as many as he could. So there's a lot that get written off in this one. Just a really quick mention going on to the gadgets as well. This is the first Bond film where we see a digital watch. This is also, I believe, the only film where Bond actually switches watches partway through because obviously he then changes to the Rolex. Um, the Rolex Submariner itself is also the main gadget in the film, so it uses the magnetised dial and the buzzsaw surround system, so obviously that helps Bond at the end to escape from the shark pit. A few other honourable mentions as well, just also quickly moving on to the villains' gadgets. We see quite a few interesting devices that they use particularly the impulse noise bomb at the very start obviously to kill the um, the diplomat the fact that that is used to um to such great effect i mean it's such an unusual device but it works so effectively and of course the coconut heads which are used to either shoot rosie or to watch bond throughout the um the island so quite an interesting use of of those too so it all in all the gadgets now are starting to to build up and to ramp up Okay, so thanks very much for that summary there of the cards and gadgets, Phil. I'd say probably one of my favourite parts uh, in the plane sequence is where one of the cars, the driver, says that he can't find the brakes. Bizarrely, like, why, why can't he? Obviously, he's not used to chasing a plane. Perhaps that might be the reason. It's time for your flying lesson today, Mrs. Bell. Why don't you acquaint yourself with manuals? You'll be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. 
Just took a few seconds, Q. Okay, now uh, <laughs> over to Adam to take a look at the differences between the book and the film version. So buy the book 007. Thank you very much, Martin. So Live and Let Die is only the second James Bond novel, so he's still very green uh, as a secret agent, but he has a new confidence, the character at this point, having foiled the sheath in a casino royale. Again, like the previous film, this is a very loose adaptation. We take a lot of the characters from the novel uh, and some of the basic setup and settings, but the actual storyline has been quite radically altered. So there's no Dr. Kananga in the book. The, the villain of the novel is solely Mr. Big, who is a, a drug baron who is funding Smirsh, the Russian secret service, by smuggling pirate gold, which belonged to the historical pirate Henry Morgan. So in a sense, he's very much a precursor of Oric Goldfinger, who is, of course, also smuggling gold to fund the Russian secret service. So we start out the very same way that the film starts, with Bond going to Harlem to meet up with Felix Leiter. However, the sequence which in the film takes place later on in New Orleans takes place here much earlier on, in that Solitaire saves Bond from being murdered, but at the expense of Bond having a finger broken by Mr. Big's thugs. And it's at this point that Solitaire flees Mr. Big's employ because, of course, being a future teller, the cards have told her that Bond is going to rescue her from Mr. Big. We then get to Bond and Solitaire on a train journey as they finish the film on the train. Uh, but this time they don't go to New Orleans, they in fact go to Florida uh, to discover the next link in Mr. Big's smuggling chain, which is uh, in a warehouse where he's keeping the coins in tropical fish tanks. From there we go to the Caribbean, at which point Solitaire is recaptured by Mr. Big as she is in New Orleans in the film. Uh, but we don't go to San Monique, the fictional island of which Dr. Kananga is prime minister. We go to Jamaica where, of course, Fleming is writing this novel and so knows very well. And at this point, we meet actual Quarrel, not Quarrel Jr., the real Quarrel, and Strangways, because this is, of course, a novel that is written before Dr. No, and so later on when Fleming writes Dr. No, he's able to bring these characters back, because in the films, Dr. No's already happened, Strangways is already dead, and so is Quarrel, and so the character of Quarrel Jr. is introduced. And here, Bond does a lot of diving training in order to discover the final link in the smuggling train. And uh, through that training, is able to plant a limpet mine on Mr. Big's yacht, which in the grand finale sequence uh, explodes and leads to Mr. Big's demise, in this case, eaten by sharks. A couple of very important things to say on the book, actually. The first is that the voodoo is very much downplayed in this one. There are mentions of Baron Samadhi, and of course, Solitaire is present as the high priestess, but it's nowhere near as pronounced as in the film. And also, two of the most famous and shocking sequences in the novel are left out of this film, but they are adapted in subsequent Bond films. The first is the finale sequence in which Bond and Solitaire are both kidnapped by Mr. Big and are keel-hauled on the back of his yacht, drawn through shark-infested waters in order to have them killed. And this is adapted later on in the film For Your Eyes Only, in which it's Bond and Melina Havelock who are subject to the keel-hauling suspense sequence. And the other very important one is that while we're in the warehouse of the tropical fish tanks in Florida, Felix Leiter is kidnapped and is fed to the sharks. This is the moment in the novels, only the second one, where he loses his leg. And this, of course, is a sequence adapted at the very beginning of License to Kill, which kicks off the much tougher revenge mission that Bond is sent on in that film. Of course, in that, Felix Leiter's new bride also tragically murdered. So this book... Uh, as I say, host these two sequences, which we return to later on in the series when we're back making much more serious and straight-faced and thrilling, I guess, uh, James Bond films. I guess those sequences just would not have fitted the more comic tone that Mankiewicz and the producers are going for with this film. Okay, very interesting stuff there, Adam. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll move on now to uh, my segment, which is That's Not Okay Anymore. Now, this segment could be quite a long one, but we've spoken at length about many of the uh, the issues that we found awkward or uncomfortable in our viewing. So we've mentioned that the uh, this, the problematic portrayal of the uh, the black exploitation genre. I don't know if uh, we need to talk more about that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've covered the black exploitation elements uh, fairly well. I guess just to say, I think what's properly inappropriate about it is the fact that Tom Mankiewicz is a white writer and black exploitation is a black film genre it's made by black filmmakers at a time where certainly more so even than now the underrepresentation of black creatives in the film industry was pronounced which is why they just go independent and they start making their own films 
I guess it's also worth saying that um, several actors who appear in black exploitation movies are cast in this because they have that pedigree. Yafe Koto, I think, had a, a star in some, but Julius W. Harris, who plays Teehee, has a major role in Superfly, one of the most celebrated of the black exploitation films. So at least they are casting actors who have come up through that independent school of filmmaking and giving them, you know, prominent roles in this huge, big budget blockbuster. And yeah, we've also spoken a little bit about the uh, the female characters not given great scenes in this film, some sexism, and certainly the most uncomfortable parts that I felt were Roger Moore's love scenes, particularly with Solitaire, felt very predatory. We could say even, I guess, rape by deception might be uh, a, an official category that you might label that scene as. Uh, so yeah, I guess the, the writer's still getting their bearings with how to write Roger Moore's love scenes for his portrayal rather than uh, Connery's portrayal of Bond. Yeah, the fact that he deliberately uses the kind of all the same cards to trick Solitaire in that sequence is, is not good at all. But um, I guess you have to look at how it then transcends into the future. I suppose it does get a little bit better moving forward. So this is probably a blip, but it's, it's not the way that the rest of the franchise goes, I'd probably say. And then um, we've mentioned the, the character that they love to hate, J.W., his scenes might not be considered particularly appropriate, but still enjoyable nonetheless. I think what relieves him is the fact that all the other characters around him seem to acknowledge him as a little bit of an idiot and, and completely backward and outdated. You know, the younger officers laugh at him when his car is destroyed by the jumping boat. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Okay, so we move on to our final segment, which is the quiz. So it's my turn this time. Now, slightly different. It's not really a quiz this week. I thought, appropriately, this film, uh, we have Solitaire playing her cards. Uh, so we're going to have a bit of a card game. So it's a game of luck and educated guesswork and your knowledge of Bond villains. Uh, so we're actually going to play uh, a game of top trumps. And we're going to have five rounds. The first to three wins. And, of course, the winner will choose our outro song. Okay, so uh, obviously we are doing this one at a distance, so both Adam and Phil won't see their cards, but I'll let them know what character they've chosen, uh, and then they'll choose the category that they think beats the other person. Okay, so uh, each card has four categories. We have two positive traits of style and seduction, and two negative traits of brutality and twisted mind. We've got 10 cards in total. Maybe we'll start with Adam. Which card number would you like? Oh, number seven, of course. Pussy Galore from Goldfinger is your card. And Phil, what number would you like? Uh, could I have number five? Number five, you've also chosen a character from Goldfinger. Goldfinger. Adam's round this time. So, uh, Adam, you will choose the category. Which category do you think Pussy Galore beats Goldfinger? <laughs> I, would be ex I would be extremely disappointed if she doesn't beat Goldfinger on seduction. Okay, Pussy Galore has a score of 43 on the official 007 trump cards for seduction. And Goldfinger has 18. So, I mean, maybe a bit too high, I'd say 18, but uh, well done, Adam. 18? Round number one. So Adam's Pussy Galore beats Goldfinger. What was that? My pussy galore beats a goldfinger. Uh, round number uh, two. Phil, what number card would you like? Uh, could I have number three, please? You chose a number three, which is our favourite Blofeld, Donald Pleasance in You Only Live Twice. And Adam, which card would you like? I'll go for number ten, I think. Number ten is Emilio Largo from Thunderball. So, uh, Phil, which category do you think Blofeld from You Only Live Twice would beat Largo from Thunderball. This is quite tricky. I'm going to say Twisted Mind. And you would be correct to do so. Well done, Phil. He lost on every other category, but Twisted Mind, he has 20, and Emilio Largo has 14. So uh, well done, Phil. And uh, on to round number three, Adam. Which card would you like? Number one. I'll go for number one. Okay, number one, you've chosen James Bond from Live and Let Die. And Phil? Uh, could I have number nine, please? Number nine, you've chosen Rosa Klebb 
from from Russia with love. How does Bond beat Kleb here, Adam? I would be very surprised again if Kleb were more stylish than Roger Moore as Bond, so I'm going to go for style. James Bond is given 007 for style, which we'll take as seven, and it certainly beats Rosa Kleb, who has one point for style. That's ridiculous! He doesn't have much style, though. Yeah, what part of that character is stylish? Is it the Russian uniform? Or is, it the, than... or is it the French maid outfit in the Vinali uh, sequence? No, currently it deserves more than one, two at least. Yeah, you'd have still lost on two. So. Okay, so Adam is 2-1 up now, so it's uh, round number four. So Phil, you need to win this one to bring it to a decider in round number five. Uh, so uh, which card would you like, Phil? Um, eight, please. Number eight, you've chosen Teehee from Live and Let Die. There are a few more Live and Let Die characters because uh, that's the film we've looked at today. And Adam, so you've got two, four, six. Uh, I'll go for number two. Number two is Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid from Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> coming oh, as a joy. pair, of course. When you say coming as a pair. How do you think Teehee would beat Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid? Which category? <laughs> God. I'm going to say brutality. Okay, you've gone brutality. So Teehee has a score of 53, which is actually the highest score among all of the cards for brutality. Uh, and it beats Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid on 25. So uh, well done, Phil. So we bring it to the decider, and we have cards number four and six. So Adam, which card would you like? I'll go for number six. Number six is Dr. No from Dr. No. And that leaves Phil with Baron Samady from Live and Let Die. So, Adam? I think I'm probably going to have to go for Twisted Mind here because I would imagine Baron Samady would win on all the others. So I'm not confident. Okay, so we have... Uh, maybe I'll, I'll run through the others first, build it up. <laughs> so we have Style. Who do we think would win? Baron Samady, Baron. I would assume. Yeah, yeah, Baron Samady with a solid six. Dr. No with another one point. Similar to the same as Rosa Club. Seduction. Baron Samady again. I just thought that again. Seduction, Dr. Now has 10 to Baron Samady's what? 3. Quite a bizarre really? scoring for those, yeah. We have Brutality. Uh, maybe Dr. No is higher on Brutality now, I think about it. Although uh, Samady... Yeah. yeah, he certainly is Brutality. Moments. It's close, but Dr. No wins 25 to... Baron Samadhi's 22. And then Twisted Mind, the one that you chose, Adam, Dr. No has 15 for a Twisted Mind, but Baron Samadhi has 19. So Phil scrapes the victory there, but it was very, very tight. It was, it was well played, Adam. That was very close. Yeah, very close. I, I wouldn't have thought Dr. No would have won on those other categories, to be fair. So no, fair enough. You seem to be my kryptonite, Phil. I'm generally quite good on Bond quizzes, but I don't, I don't seem to be able to beat you at the moment. Okay, very good. So, Phil, as the winner of the quiz slash Top Trumps game, what song would you like to play us out today? So, yeah, Martin, if I could um, request the uh, the even more rockier version of uh, Live and Let Die by Guns N' Roses for this week's uh, closing. Okay, very nice. and Good choice there, Phil. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Just a quick reminder to uh, follow us on the social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, you can email us, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com if you have any questions, which we will include in our new segment at the beginning of each of our shows with Q Branch. So uh, that was it for today's episode. Thanks for joining us. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Thank you very much. Have a changing world in which we live in makes you give in and cry. Say, live and let
I hid by commandeer this vehicle and <laughs> there in. And that means you, smart ass. <laughs>